Revelation chapter 20 is where we are today. But remember uh, last week, because chapter 19 ends and then chapter 20 sort of rewinds and gives more detail on the last two verses of chapter 19. And in chapter 19, starting in verse 19, he says, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's us. And so uh, here the kingdoms of the kings of the worlds, they're there in the valley of Armageddon, turn to fight against the Lord and against his army. Uh, Psalms 2 actually talks about this. It says, why do the nations rage? The people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sets in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And so here, prophetically, David talking about plotting together to fight against the Lord and and how the Lord uh, basically comes in his wrath and destroys them. And that's exactly what takes place. And not only them, but also the devil. In Revelation 19, verse 20 and 21, we ended last week. The beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so we saw in chapter 19, there's two mills. One is the married supper of the Lamb, where we, with favor and joy, are the bride of Christ and receive of that mill with the Lord. The other is, you are the mill. Uh, of all the birds of the air that flock together to eat the flesh in that final battle, the battle of Armageddon, to those who stand against the Lord. Well, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we're very used to getting a picture all the way to the seven years and then rewinding, backing up, and then looking more specific at a time. So in chapter 19, he says, yep, the devil... Uh, the false uh, prophet, they were taken, they were thrown into, the, uh, and thrown into hell, into uh, the, the place bur- fire burning with brimstone. But now in chapter 20, he gives a little more detail on that. He backs it up a little bit and says, Yep, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent of old. Remember back in the book of Genesis, that serpent of old. Who is the devil? Satan bound him for a thousand years. Now we're going to get to that in verse seven about only for why only a thousand years. But I love this. It's just an angel showed up and took out Satan. It wasn't Michael the archangel. It wasn't, you know, 10 of God's top angels and the Lord himself. And they all together wrestled Satan down. You know, so often people have that mindset. where, you know, God and the devil are almost equal powers. But of course, God being the light side and the devil being the dark side, you know, light wins over the darkness or whatever. But even when God wins, it's, it was close. You know, he's sweating and it was a real difficult thing. But, well, I'm really glad this week I beat Satan and maybe next week he'll beat me again. But, you know, um, I'm winning most of the time. You know, God's got a couple extra on Satan. That's about it. That's just ridiculous. Satan, compared to God, is a peon. The Lord could just speak a word or flick his little pinky at any moment and take him out. There is no contest. And I love the fact that he sends just, you know, some brand new angel fresh on the job. Go take out Satan, you know. It's no big deal. And he grabs him, he chains him, binds him up. And, and again, you know, the, the whole point that God at this point in time has chosen to allow the sinful world to exist. He has allowed sinful man to continue on. But he also has allowed sinful angels to continue on. 
for his own purpose. Now, there's going to be a time when God's going to say, no more sinful planet, no more sinful man, and no more sinful angels. And he's going to deal with it, and then there's going to be the final dealing with it, as we're going to see. But right now, God chooses to work with the wills of rebellious and sinful beings of all kinds. And with man, it's because he desires him to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. With Satan, he uses him for his own purposes. And he's always had him on a chain. (laughs) He's always been limited to what God has limited him to. And we see in the book of Job where, you know, he has to come and basically get permission to attack Job. He just doesn't do whatever he wants to him. He has to say, and the Lord says, well, you can go this far, but no farther. And Satan wisely stays within the boundaries the Lord gives him. Now, I don't understand all of that. It just seems rather bizarre. But the spiritual realm is not like the earthly realm that we do more clearly understand. But he takes him and he locks him up in this bottomless pit. In Jude 6, there were other angels that crossed the line. And he tells us this in Jude 6. The angel who did not keep, the angels, plurals, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in an everlasting chain under the darkness of the judgment of the great day. So there are other angels that were locked up because they did not respect the boundaries God gave them. And God just locked them up. Now, some of those end up uh, becoming some pretty crazy looking creatures. We saw that back in chapter 9. Some of those angels that had been locked up. And when the Lord released them, they looked like locusts and they had big stingers. And they were crazy looking uh, demonic creatures. Um, And then in chapter Revelation 20 there in verse 3 goes on to say, And so he cast him into the bottomless pit. Shut him up. You can say that to Satan. Shut up. And uh, the Lord says he's going to get you there. And, he, and a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. Again in verse 7 we're going to talk about that more. And so Satan's main thing that he has done is deceived. Right from the very beginning. It's amazing that he is good at being evil. (laughs) He is good at being a deceiver. And it blows my mind how Satan can take something so obviously pure and good and holy and make it seem evil. And it blows my mind how he can take the most despicable, perverted, wicked, evil things and make it look good. But he has done that to our entire planet till people see up is down and down is up as good as evil and evil is good. It's amazing. But we see that serpent of old doing that with Eve, remember? I mean, here she is. She's walking with the Lord. I mean, you get to walk with the Lord, just you and your husband. You'd get to know him pretty well. And when we look at our Lord, he's so lovely, he's so kind. He's so gentle. He's so pure. He's so other-centered and not self-centered. But yet Satan came in and said, he's evil. He's oppressing you. He's selfish. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to oppress you. And she believed it. That's some pretty good deceiving, isn't it? And there she took of that fruit. And since then, the whole world's been in a tailspin of pain and suffering and sorrow and evil of of all kinds. And so today, as we head towards the end times, the Bible tells us that we're going to see more of this deceiving. A matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, the evil deceivers and imposters will grow worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Not only do they start out lying, but they eventually believe their own lies. And they are very convincing because they really have bought into their own lies. We see today that uh, just as the Bible prophesied, the days would become as Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And we see that today. Where people that are completely perverts, it's a good, wonderful thing, homosexuality. But yet we're looking at it who are in the light going, this is about sex. Like that's 99% of who a person is. Guys, it's not. Sex should be about 1% of your life, not 99% of your life. There's something wrong if you want to describe yourself concerning sex. There's just something way out there on that to begin with. But on top of that, they're, they're just blown away when the Boy Scouts say no homosexual leaders. Oh, that's evil. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want some pervert in a tent with my kid for a week. You know, it just makes sense. But again, we are in the light and we're looking at this going, how, how could they even think anything different? But they're so deceived by Satan. It's so twisted that they're, the Boy Scouts are evil because they're oppressing them by not letting. And we're just blown away. You look at science, men who are intelligent, but yet they believe the evolutionary theory. When you look at the facts of science, evolution could not have begun. It could not have Evolved, it could not be to where we're at today. Evolution does not explain things. It's not even a good hypothesis. It shouldn't have even uh, come to the point of being a theory. But yet, men of science, intelligent men, not wanting to give glory to the Creator, have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And professing to be wise, they become fools and worship the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever and ever. Amen. And so he's deceived the world, and he is now locked up. And he's locked up in this bottomless pit, this abuso, for a thousand years. Now, the word thousand years here, um, it it comes from a a couple of different words where we come up with the, the term millennium. Milli, referring to a thousand annum years. We come up with this concept, the millennium period, the millennial reign of Christ, uh, the millennium reign. And so sometimes people will say, well, show me the word millennium in the Bible. And you just say, well, show me the word Bible in the Bible. Um, When you have a clear concept, whether we have the word uh, in Latin or whether we have the word from the Greek or whatever it is, the concept is very clearly there. And this is the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. And this is where where we come to verse 4. He says, I saw the thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, or the Greek word is actually more general. It could also just mean executed, for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worship the beast or his image and had not received his mark on his forehead or on their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, earlier we saw that the tribulation saints, they were serving in the temple. But now for this millennial thousand year reign, they have the equal status of those who were raptured before the tribulation period. And together, those who were raptured before the tribulation period and those who have been Uh, receive the Lord in the tribulation period, we all rule and reign with Christ. And uh, in various degrees, uh, depending on your faithfulness. And so we've studied this out a little bit before, but just a a couple more words on it. In Matthew 19, 28, we see in particular the apostles have a, a greater position. Jesus said in verse 28 of Matthew 19, Assuredly, I say to you that this generation... That in, this, in the generation when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Luke twenty two twenty nine, on this same exact subject, he says it this way, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, 
that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, set on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now concerning all the believers, he says this in Matthew twenty five twenty one, And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of our Lord. And in Luke 19, on the same exact subject again, he says it this way in Luke nineteen seventeen, Well done, good servant. Because you are faithful and a very little, I have authority now over ten cities. So in specific, in the millennial reign, over actual towns. You're the uh, mayor or whatever it might be, whatever the term is. And then also in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, when he is talking about the church, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that you shall judge the angels? So we're going to even have a, a, a hand in the judgment of the demonic uh, creatures who have so bothered us through the years. In 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, If we endure, referring with Jesus, we shall also reign with him. And there's many other verses on this. So we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand-year millennial reign on this earth. And so right now, as we are here, the next thing that's coming is the rapture of the church. Where millions, hopefully billions of people on this planet will immediately disappear It says in Luke 21 that the whole earth will be in a snare because of this. Doctors in the middle of operations, pilots uh, disappear from cockpits of airplanes and and drivers in cars. And the people who know how the sewage system or the water system or electric power system are are gone. And there's people who don't know how these things work. It's going to be a a difficulty on the, the planet. Tremendously. And then on top of that, you're going to have a seven-year tribulation period where Satan is basically going to have free reign to start running things the way he wants. He's going to have an economic system. He's going to have a world military system. And then he's going to establish a religious system that worships him. Now, at the end of that tribulation period, when God pours out the bowls of his wrath upon the planet in the last three and a half years, finally, we come at the very end of that time, seven years to the day, we appear with the Lord. The Lord lands on the Mount of Olives on his white horse and the earth opens up from the Dead Sea all the way out to the Mediterranean. And then those there in the Valley of Armageddon, which is near Jerusalem, it's in the country of Israel today, will turn their focus from fighting against each other and the Antichrist to focus on Jesus Christ. And we there uh, with the armies, there's a great battle that goes on. After that battle, you can read about it in Daniel chapter 12. He gives a number of series of days. 1260 days, 1290 days. Blessed is he who makes it to the 1340th day. So there's a time period where um, the earth is basically being made over. The ultimate makeover. <laughs> the planet Earth. And uh, most believe it's going to come back to the state of Garden of Eden. And remember now, in the destruction of the flood, that there's far greater amount of ocean than there was before because the waters were underneath the dirt and the waters above blocking out the, the sun. And there was a lot more land mass, and a lot of that land was lost in the flood. Well, I think it's going to come back. And those who made it through the tribulation period, in particular the Jews and others who made it to uh, Petra, to the wilderness there near Jerusalem, to the rock city found in the country of Jordan today, God's going to put his protective hand over them and protect them there. And then... Uh, throughout the world, there's going to be people that, that did not worship the Antichrist, did not take the mark of the beast, and have submitted themselves to God. And ultimately, um, they're going to make it through. And the Lord's going to gather them all together, and they are going to begin to repopulate the planet. Now, let me tell you about this thousand-year reign. There is so much information in, on this subject 
If I was to start reading right now through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and through all the minor prophets about it, it would take us hours just to read the amount of passages on this. There is a lot on this rain. The Bible uh, gives us a lot of descriptions. Let me just give you a couple. Turn over to Isaiah, if you would. There in chapter 2. Let's start there. Isaiah chapter 2, starting there in verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations will flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Go over to Isaiah chapter 11. There, starting in verse 6. Isaiah 11, verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw with the ox. The nursing child shall play with the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so Christ himself is going to come and rule and reign. He will be living there in Jerusalem. Highways throughout the world will connect it to Jerusalem. You can go wherever you're at up to Jerusalem and listen to Jesus teach at a Bible study. And this will go on for a thousand years. As you look at the description, a person who's a hundred years old will be like a child. Ah, you don't know anything. You're a hundred years old. You're just a kid. And so people that have been saved out of the tribulation period, they're going to remain alive. And so we're talking people like, if we go back to the beginning of Genesis, people lived hundreds, even almost a thousand years And then God eventually stopped it. Remember, we get to the time of the flood and God says, that's it. Man will be about 120 years. No more. I'm going to put a cap on this thing. Uh, Moses lived to be 120 years old and that was huge. And then the time we get to the kings, they're all living about the length of time we live today. And um, so once again, man's going to live for hundreds, even maybe a, a thousand years. And they're going to be taught by the Lord repeatedly over and over again. And we are going to rule and reign on this earth with Christ. And there's going to be absolutely no evil allowed of any kind. The Lord's going to have a a rod of iron. So imagine a big giant lead pipe. And in Psalms 2 it says it's like hitting a clay pot. So you've got a big giant lead pipe and you hit a clay pot. That's what he's going to do to people's heads who even consider doing evil. It talks about where when they have a need, before they even can ask, the Lord's right there to meet their need. So it's, it's radical. It's as if the Lord's just reading the thoughts and the desires of their heart and their mind. And, and before they even have a chance to say, Lord, I have this need, he's there to meet their need. Well, probably the opposite is also true, that when they're considering doing evil, <laughs> that the Lord is right there in their face saying, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to cross that line. I'm not going to allow it. Well, going on in verse 5, he says in Revelation 20 there in verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with them a thousand years. So you have to understand God's definition, the Bible's definitions of life and of death. First of all, death is not the physical body dying. That is something that's a byproduct of sin. But when the Bible talks about death, it's not really considering that. 
He said to Adam and Eve, he said, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely, what? Die. And indeed, they were separated from God. They were kicked out of the garden, and that, those wonderful little walks in the cool of the evening were over. And there was a separation from God. Now, when that came, there also came pain and suffering and evil and ultimately a physical death. And so the first death is when a man is separated from God. But really, he's going to see God again. When is he going to see God again? He's going to see God again at judgment. And so because he's going to see God again, there is the first death. And then the second death is when he, after judgment comes, which is after the millennial reign of Christ. Then man is damned to hell forever, and at that point, he will never, ever see God again. That is the second death. Now, as far as blessed are those who are a part of that first resurrection, for us who are believers, we get our brand new bodies, and we're with the Lord. And so those who are resurrected are those who are going to be living with Christ forever and ever. Right now, a thousand years on the earth, ultimately in heaven, a new heavens and a new earth for all of eternity. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. He says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So everybody is going to live forever in one place or the other. We're going back to Revelation 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog to gather together to battle those whose number is as the sand of the sea. So this is an amazing concept here. That after Satan has been locked up for a thousand years in the Abuso, man now has been taught by the Lord for a thousand years. They've seen nothing but perfect righteousness on the earth for a thousand years. That Satan is released and given the opportunity to give man that choice, as all of us have had to make that choice, whether to serve God or to serve themselves. And it blows our mind to see that the people that agree with Satan are as, as many as the sands of the sea. Now, if you do the math, and it's been a while since I've done it, but uh, I remember back when uh, I was in Genesis. I think if you took, um, you said every person had four kids, I think it was, and you gave it a thousand years, you ended up with about 25 billion people on the planet. So I'll have to go back and redo the math. But when we look at Genesis, these gals were hundreds of years old still having babies. Imagine being 500 years old still having kids. (laughs) Well, things have got to be a little bit different than that. You're like going, oh, no, that doesn't sound very fun. And uh, so we're talking people can have dozens of kids. And so the population of the earth is going to be huge, billions of people after that that thousand-year reign. And Satan comes, and although outwardly people were not able to do any unrighteousness, yet in their heart, There were people who were feeling quenched out and oppressed by Jesus. His nature just rubbed them wrong. His attitude and and his righteousness and his holiness, they just hated it. And in their hearts, they couldn't express it outwardly, but in their hearts, they were rebelling against him. And when Satan was released and gave him that opportunity, they quickly sided with Satan. You know, this is sort of the final period upon planet Earth and concerning our the depths of our depravity. Even if somebody was looking face to face at Jesus for a thousand years, <laughs> taught by him for a thousand years, 
they could still hate him. They could still want to war against him. That's just amazing to me. It amazes me on a couple of levels. First of all, it amazes me because we realize our our salvation right now is really an incredible miracle. The greatest miracle of all is our wicked hearts being yielded to God. And if you think about it, the odds are against us. We're in a sinful body that wants to war against God. We're in a sinful planet that wants to war against God. We have Satan constantly saying, you want to serve God? You're going to pay. Why don't you give in and, and, and not be so on fire for the Lord and I'll back off. So we have the demonic pressure. We have the worldly pressure. We have the pressure from our bodies. And guess what? Against all odds, we are daily saying yes to the Lord. Right now, you're saying yes to God. To a degree for you to sit here right now, you're having to beat your body into subjection. You're having to say no to the world. They think you're crazy for going to church. And you probably fought a few demons on the way here. You, you were you know, yelling at your wife and your kids and kicking your dog. And, and you were just, it was really just demons. They're just bugging you, hounding you, trying to get you all upset so you couldn't sit here and listen to the message this morning. When we get to heaven, we can look behind the scenes. We're going to see how much demonic activity was really messing with us, that we didn't compute it as demonic activity, but we should have. But yet against all odds, we are daily saying, Lord, I'm yours. Lord, have your way in my life. Lord, I don't care how much pain my body goes through. I'm going to seek you in the word. I'm going to seek you in prayer. I'm going to give my life to you today. Take me, Lord, use me. I don't care how much the world dislikes the way I'm living. I'm going to live this way even though it angers man. But yet I'm going to please you. I don't care. And then, of course, the demonic pressure. When we get away from demonic pressure, we're going to go, oh, oh, I had no idea how oppressive the demonic forces behind the scenes have been. And we've just learned to grow accustomed with it. Just like the pressures of gravity keeping us on this planet, there's just a demonic blanket continually upon us trying to smother us. And, but yet we've constantly said yes to God. And what a miracle of miracles of miracles it is. On another level, it just speaks again of the rebellious heart of man and how wicked man truly, truly is. That man is not rebelling against God because his environment. You know, we, you know, you can't judge, you can't condemn that guy for being a thief or a murderer or whatever because he, you know, had a bad home life. He was raised in a bad area of town. And I, I'm not saying those things don't contribute to the wickedness of their heart. It does. But guess what? <laughs> Even if they were in a perfect environment for a thousand years, they can still be just as evil. And so again, we have no excuses. It's just out and out, the rebellious wickedness of the heart of man is incredibly great. And so these guys have the opportunity to say yes to God, just like we've had to say yes to God. And so even though they've been given every advantage possible, information, righteousness, time, every possible help to make the right choice when Satan comes on the scene. And they're told in advance, right? (laughs) We know this. So we're going to probably be telling him, hey guys, one of them started about 987 years ago, so here in another uh, 13 years, Satan's going to be showing up and he's going to try to tempt you and you need to say no to him and we're going to, they're going to have every possible advantage. And they're still going to side with Satan a whole Sand of the sea amount of people, thousands of people are going to side with Satan. And then there's going to be this war, this final war. Doesn't God know how to bless us? Before there's a new heaven, a new earth, we get one more chance to kick Satan's butt. I mean, that's just going to be just icing on the cake to make heaven heaven, isn't it? One more final time to do Satan in and then we get to go to heaven and never have to think about that guy ever, ever again. 
Well, in verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. And the fire came down from God from out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In Matthew twenty-five forty-one, it makes it very clear that this everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not made for man, but yet man is going to go there because they didn't receive the one way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And notice how long this goes on. Forever and what? Ever. Again, there's people that come in and try to Put a spin on the scriptures. Try to water down the scriptures. Try to change what God says. Oh, well, you know, they'll probably go to hell for a few thousand years, and then once they pay their debt, then they'll be free. Well, you know, God talks about hell, but it's sort of a myth because he wants to scare people into being right. Scared straight. You know, God, I know he talks tough, like he's really going to punish people, but when it really comes down to it, he's going to say, ah, come on. I can't really see anybody to hell. Let's all go to heaven. Guys, it's not true. Satan, all his demonic creatures, are going to go to the lake of fire forever and ever. And man, who has not received the one way of salvation... And in verse 20 he says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So in the presence of God, the judgment day, all things being revealed, they want to go find a place to hide. And there was no place for them. The Bible talks about two separate judgments, one for the wicked and one for the righteous. The wicked is called the white throne judgment, coming before the judge. And there they are judged according to what they've done to see to what degree of condemnation they're going to receive. You might make a note and read John chapter 5, verse 20 through, 22 through 29. And Jesus says, All judgment has been given to me that they would honor me as they honor the Father. And he is going to execute a fierce judgment and bring condemnation upon those who have not received the Son. If you have not received the Son... Condemnation is upon you. John chapter 3 tells us the same thing. In Acts 10.42, it says this, Peter preaching there in Caesarea to Cornelius and his household. He said, He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. One of the things Jesus specifically told the apostles, when you preach the gospel... Make sure you tell them that I am coming back to judge them, the living and the dead. Those who are alive, make it through that tribulation period, will be judged. And those who have died uh, from the tribulation period before, it's appointed every man to die once and then a judgment to stand before God. The other judgment is called the Bema Seat of Christ, where we as believers will stand before God in judgment. In Romans 14, talking to the Christians about stumbling their brother, he goes on to say in the second part of verse 10 of of Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, it says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us, believers, shall give an account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, talking about this very point, talking to the Christians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust are also well known in your conscience. So he makes it very clear that, hey, we've told you this, and and and. It should come to mind that we've told you this. So when you're making decisions in your life, you remember, whoa, whatever I say, I'm going to have to talk to God about it. Whatever I do, I'm going to have to give an account to God about it. And there should be this sense of fear, a reverence, a a holy 
sense of God's presence that I'm going to have to discuss everything I say and do before the Lord. And it, it should go deep into our beings. In 1 Corinthians 3, turn over there if you would in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. But then he goes on to say, so there's some Christians that they've been saved, but they've never lived a submitted life to God as they should. And although they will receive salvation, heaven-wise, they're completely in poverty. They have no reward forever and ever and ever. But on top of that, there's other people that have known the Lord that have crossed the line. And look at the very next verse, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So there's a a heavy sense where Paul is saying, well, well, don't, don't just say, well, I'll go to heaven with no reward. No big deal. I'm in heaven still. He quickly comes back and says, but hold it. There's another line that can be crossed. Where you go from just not submitting as you should, which is a sin of omission, to committing the sin of commission, which now you're living in immorality, you're living in sin, you're living in impurity, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and anybody messes with the temple of God, God's going to judge him. We see in the book of Revelation, as he's talking to the churches, and some of them he says, I know your works. You guys are laboring, you're taking care of the poor, your works are more than what you started. But then he says, but there's this immorality going on. There's this other sin behind the scene going on. And he comes back and says, hey, if you guys don't deal with this, whoever is involved is going to be cast into the tribulation period. He's talking to the churches here, guys. And then in one church, he finally says, you know what? You guys are in jeopardy of getting your book taken out of the book. You're getting your name taken out of the book of life. Which is as heavy as it can get. <laughs> and the word was repent and do it quickly. Don't have an attitude of saying, well, you know, as long as I make it, I don't care if I have a reward. He's saying, no way. You guys are now crossing the line. And when somebody isn't submitting themselves to the will of God as they should... It's often not long until they are submitting themselves to wickedness and evil and immorality. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting there in verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind... Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So wake up, get on fire, get going. Look, because Jesus is coming soon and and keep your eyes upon him until he comes. In verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance before you knew Christ, the old B.C. days. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written Be holy, for I am holy. Now listen to verse 17. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here, referring to planet Earth, in fear. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from the aimless conduct received from the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Boy, when you think about the incredible torture of Jesus Christ, 
When you think of the incredible intensity of the punishment that fell upon him, you begin to get a sense of the wrath of God towards sin. Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. The punishment that we saw that fell upon Jesus was the punishment of our sins and being satisfied by the Father. And so when we look at that, we begin to understand the hatred that God has towards sin. And it should go deep into our souls to have that same hatred, to hate what he hates to the degree he hates it. And to love what he loves to the degree he loves it. And in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 and then into 15 it says this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest any fall short of the grace of God. And he goes on. But without holiness, no one's going to see God. And be careful that you don't fall short of the grace of God. And something else gets in there. And in this particular case, bitterness, but also we know of uh, fornication and immorality, gets in there. And you fall short of what God has desired to do in your life. Well, back in Revelation verse 20, there in verse 12. So I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. So we have a number of different locations, if you would. There is an abyss, a place of holding for demons. And we see in in Jude 6, it talks about those who crossed the line were locked up. Satan was locked up in this abyss, this, this hell before hell, if you would. Then there's also what we call death, Sheol, the holding place. Again, the Bible describes it in the center of the earth. There's one compartment for the righteous, another compartment for the wicked. We learn this from the story that Jesus tells, not a parable, because he mentions the guy's name, Lazarus and the rich man. And the holding place for the wicked was also a place of torment, but it's still not hell. It's called Hades. Then there's a place called the bosom of Abraham or paradise where Christ himself went. And he was there for three days and three nights when he preached the gospel. And then it says he released those captive in Ephesians 4 and also Peter. After he raised from the dead, they came with him. So now to be absent from the body, the Bible tells us, is to be present with the Lord. And so you have the Abuso. You have uh, Hades, that place where the wicked are held in Sheol. is called Hades. And then he gathers everybody who's anywhere else that just died during the tribulation period, whether they died on land or whether they died on sea. It doesn't matter. He gathers all of the people together and before the great judgment. And if their name is not in the book of life, they are judged by God to eternal damnation. Look on, if you would, to verse 14 and 15. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So everything they done will be judged one by one. And Ecclesiastes 2.14 says, And God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew 12.36 But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it. In the day of judgment. In Romans 2.16. And the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It tells us in Matthew 11. That Jesus came and rebuked the cities where he had done so many mighty works. And they didn't repent. And he said, woe to you Chorazin. Woe to you Bethsaida. For if the mighty works were done in you which had been done in Tyre and Sidon. 
They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and the day of judgment than for you. So there's various degrees of judgment. There's various degrees that people will go into the lake of fire. We saw in Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man that was in Hades and that holding place for the wicked didn't seem to be an evil, rebellious man. He called out, Father Abraham, as he looked at the forefather of our faith. And he said, would you please take a little water and put it upon my tongue for the place I'm at his torment? And he said, there's a chasm between us. It can't be crossed. Well, hey, I know that guy Lazarus. I used to feed him. I had a, a sort of a soup kitchen outside my house. They got all the food, all the leftovers when we were done. We didn't put them away in the refrigerator. We just gave them out to the poor and people surrounded my house and, and I fed them. He, he wasn't this horrible, evil man. He was a man who thought about his fellow man after the fact. And he said, no, it can't be done. You and your lifetime were comforted now, Lazarus, for all of eternity. And then he said this, would you please send him back and warn my brothers? For they are in the same spiritual state that I was in. And he said, if they didn't believe the scriptures, they wouldn't believe even if one raised from the dead. So we see a man that's going to go for all of eternity in hell because his name is not written in the book of life. There's one book open that's all the deeds of man. And this guy, he's going to get some credit for the good he did, but yet he still was a man who did not submit himself to the will of Jesus Christ. And therefore he will be judged in a lake of fire, not as hot as some people, not as dark as some people, but hell is still hell for all of eternity. Guys, do you get this? There isn't good or better. There is the best and there is the worst. There is heaven and then there is eternal damnation in a lake of fire forever and ever and ever. It should just shock us. Satan has not only deceived the world, he's deceived the church. (laughs) He's deceived us to say the Bible's boring, don't bother reading it every day. Church is a duty, like going to the dentist and getting your teeth clean. Go, because you need it, but, you know, try to stay awake, and if you do, that's pretty good. Sharing the Lord with people is something that only a hyper 1% of the church is to do. It's not your ministry. Your ministry is to sit and listen to Brian, that's it. Satan's duped us. Without people submitting their lives to Christ and yielding themselves daily, denying themselves daily, taking up a cross and following Jesus Christ, they're not going to be neutralized. (laughs) They're not going to just stop existing. They're not going to just go into a comatose state and just sort of be nothing. They're going to hell. They're going to be very awake, very conscious, They are going to be burning. They're going to have skin only to feel the pain of burning. They're going to have eyes to only see that they can see nothing but darkness. They're going to have teeth just to clench because of the agony of the pain. They're going to have ears only to hear the screams of demons and of the devil and of men and pain and agony. And it will never, ever, ever, ever end. It's not okay if you don't share the Lord. You hear people say, Christians say, well, you know, whoever it is, my dad, my brother, my friend, my coworker, they weren't a Christian like we're Christians, but they bought a lot of Girl Scout cookies. So, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, knowing that they were sort of a kind person and, and helpful, that, you know, they'll make it. They're not! They're not going to make it. It's wishful thinking. That's all it is. It's not true. They are in hell. Yes. Picture that loved one. Picture that neighbor. 
Picture that coworker. They are burning in Hades right now, and eventually Hades is going to be taken and thrown into hell for all of eternity. But we often listen to the devil. Don't be a fanatic. Don't tell people about Christ. Who are you to tell them about your religion? Maybe their belief is superior. Guys, if you believe that, you yourself aren't saved. God says, you can be a Buddhist, you can be a Hindu, you can, or you can be a Christian. Do you realize how stupid that is? Do you think God would give his own son to have to come into this stinking sinful world, into sinful flesh, to be a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, and then to be tortured, put to death, and he's one of many possible ways. That makes God a horrible, wicked, evil person. If there was another way, Jesus in the garden said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. The answer was rhetorically, no, there is no other way. And for you to say there's a possibility of another way, you are spitting in God's face. You are spitting on the cross of Christ. There is no other way in which men can be saved except through Jesus Christ. God has loved us. He has sent His Son for us. His Spirit's in the world convicting men of sin and of righteousness of judgment. He's already laid the foundation. Go and preach the gospel. How will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, it says, Awake to righteousness. Do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. What sin were they committing? It was a sin of omission. Just being a neutral Christian. (laughs) Being a lukewarm Christian. Guys, we don't have that opportunity. Because if you're family member, that co-worker, that guy at the grocery store does not fall upon his face and say, Jesus is Lord and submit his life to him. It's not, well, you know, he's not going to quite make it to heaven, but you know, the secondary place is going to be okay too. He's going to hell for all of eternity. Charles Spurgeon said, if I could take one guy and dangle him over hell for five minutes and then put him upon the streets of London He said in a matter of days, all of London would have heard the gospel. You know, there's a blessing. The Bible says going to the book of Revelation. I don't know about you. This has been hard. Every week hearing about judgment and it's a horror movie. Of the tribulation upon the earth. And it's next couple of weeks are going to be pretty good about heaven and the Lord. But outside of that, it's been hard. And you know why God had to put a special blessing to it? Because it's not fun stuff to hear, to be honest with you. It's hard. But I do know the Lord has put these prophecies here to burn out the dross in our life. And for us to see things as they really are and really will be. Preach the word, guys. In season and what? (laughs) out of season, when it seems comfortable, when it seems right, when it doesn't seem it's going to be offensive, and then preach it out of season, when it is offensive, when it isn't enough time, when they're going to be late to their appointment, when they're, go for it. Because if they don't receive the Lord, they go to where? Hell. Forever and ever and ever. I had a person one time ask me, they said, prove to me. There's a heaven or a hell. And I said, you know, if you had a map of the United States, how many places on that map would you have to go before you believe the whole map? And they said three. I said, well, that's pretty generous of you. So if you got in your car and you went to Albuquerque and over to Denver and over to Boston, and then you would be confident to hand this map to somebody, say it'll get you to Texas and South Carolina and over to Oregon. Yes. Let me tell you the Bible has thousands of points on the map we can verify. Kings, lineages, battles, numbers, 
all kinds of words that are scientific, although the Bible's not a scientific book. There, the Bible has ridiculously <laughs> put thousands of extremely detailed pieces of information where it could be wrong. But yet not one archaeological find has controverted the Word of God. Not one fact of science is in disagreement with the Bible. Not one historical piece of information is in contradiction to the Scripture. You will not find the Bible in error once. And so if I can go to thousands of points on this map and be confident, then the points on the map I can't yet go to because you can't go to heaven or hell in this body. Then why would I doubt the couple of places off the map I can't go to yet? I can travel and go to Jerusalem equally. One day I will travel and go to heaven. If I can go to Egypt and see it described exactly as the Bible describes it, one day people will go to hell and they will see it exactly as God has described it. Guys, it's huge what's on the line here, guys. We need to awaken to righteousness. The most important thing we do as a church is we pray on Sunday night. Don't let Satan lie to you. Oh, you can't go to church twice on Sunday. Sure you can. What is more important tonight that you could do than come and pray? But my TV show, tape it. It's probably something you shouldn't watch anyway, but tape it. Watch it later. Well, I got to get up early. We're done at 8.30. You're telling me you go to bed before 8.30? I'm telling you guys, the Bible has given us a tremendous promise. If my people will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. You know what? Then it says, and seek my face. You can't really seek God's face until you get rid of the worldliness in your life. The reason many of you don't come Sunday night to pray, it's not because of time. It's not because of schedule. It's not because of kids. It's your life has so many weeds in it. You're, the root system is not going very deep. And you're a shallow Christian. And it's not just you're shallow here at church. You're shallow all week at home. You're shallow at work. You're shallow when you're with the family. You're shallow with your friends. You don't share the Lord. You don't seek God in prayer. You don't spend time in the Word. Your life is built on hay, wood, and stubble. God's faithful. He's not going to (laughs) bend. But you're not being faithful. And whether you stand before the bema seat of Christ and have no reward, all is burned up in the fire, or whether you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, because you've turned from following righteousness like Judas... (laughs) to giving in and surrendering to Satan. I say to you, awake unto righteousness. There are some among you who do not have the knowledge of Christ, and I speak this to your shame. And could you imagine them standing before the judgment seat of Christ, getting ready to be damned to hell, and they look at you over there going, weren't you my neighbor that lived next door to me for 20 years? I never knew. Aren't you the guy that worked right across the hall from me at work for 15 years? What's up with this? You see, there's a lot of people that will believe. (laughs) At first they may mock you, they may criticize you, they may persecute you, but ultimately they will believe. Awaken unto righteousness. Christ will give you light. He will raise you from the dead, whatever you need. But guys, don't be lukewarm. Don't stay neutral. Either get in the battle and get wounded or get out of the battle. Either be warm or be hot or be cold. Don't be warm. But Christ right now is knocking at the door of your heart and he's wanting to come in and take the throne of your life. He's asking you to deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life in this world and follow him. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we... Know that you wash us with your word. And we know Satan has gunked up a lot of our minds. 
He's put a lot of lies even in our hearts as Christians. Saying people don't want to hear the gospel. People are offended at Christ. People don't want to be told sin is sin. All these things are lies. It's healing. It's freeing. When we hear what your word says on any subject, no matter how deep the cut may go, no matter how much we may bleed from being wounded with the sword of your word, it it heals us. And to the world that doesn't know you, even though it may be hard at first to hear what a healing balm it is when they receive you, And it becomes the wisdom of God and the power of God unto salvation. Lord, I ask right now that we, you'd break down the strongholds of Satan. We'd no longer be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But we'd be ready in season and out of season to preach the word, to convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and endurance and patience that we would do the work of an evangelist. As we're here this morning, Lord, there's some that you brought here today to hear the truth of your love for them, that you took all the pain and suffering and sorrow and the punishment of their sin upon yourself, that they could have the free gift of salvation. If that's you right now today, God's brought you here today to save you, to save you of your sin and save you from yourself and save you from the devil and save you from hell. Right now, you just cry out to him. Say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for being a sinner, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for for living my own will, my own way, my own desire. I fall upon my face. You are Lord. I give myself a surrender to you. If you're here today and you are that lukewarm Christian, you fancied yourself calling yourself a follower of Christ, but let's be honest, you haven't been following Christ. You flattered yourself calling yourself a believer. But there's a lot of stuff in the Bible you haven't been believing. But God's rich to all who call upon his name. There's no condemnation to those in Christ. He's not here to condemn any. He's trying to bring you to himself to make you that fruitful person that he created you to be in Christ. That you'd bear much fruit and give glory to God. Right now, just cry out to him, God, forgive me. Forgive me for putting my light under the bed. Forgive me for not being the salt. Forgive me for not being the Christian I should be. Cleanse me, Lord. Wash away the gunk of the world. Heal my mind where Satan has put lies in there. And free me to be the person of God that you have me to be for your glory. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. And before you head out today, grab somebody around you, especially if you don't know them, and say, hey, what's your name and what's one thing I can pray for you throughout the week? If you need prayer for anything else, the pastors and elders will be here to anoint you with oil and encourage you and pray for you. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. Bye-bye.